0: There are seven scenes, depending on who you read with regards to Revelation. Some say that there are eight. Um, some assign a prophetic uh, reason for those numbers. Um, Hendrick, Hendrickson especially assigns a very unique uh, understanding that the eighth section, the seven sections, are God's r- perfect and complete plan of redemption with the eighth section in his return and the new creation being the uh, the um, jubilee so there's some interesting concepts about that um, you think what you want to but this is scene to section two of revelation we start with chapter four but before we do that I said that we would do a brief Q&A or an a quick overview of, review I guess, of what we've covered so far in the churches. Now does anybody have any Q&A, anybody have any questions, anybody have any comments, anybody have any observations with regards to where we've gone so far and what we or you have learned if anybody is interested in divulging such information. So we'll see. Anybody anybody have any questions? Seven churches. If I gave you a quiz, would you pass? List them in order. Ephesus. Smyrna. There you go. So he's got them. Okay, so let's say what do the seven churches, what are the what are their strengths and weaknesses? What are the ones that stuck out to you in your mind? Okay why Philadelphia Well, you don't have to put this q and a on the on the answer, but oh, I guess you do um
1: it's not that it's not that Philadelphia shows us that they're the better church per se, but they kind of show us a picture of here's what a thriving church for Christ looks like, uh-huh because all the other picture, or all the other churches show pictures of the church composite throughout the church age so we're not always philadelphian we're not always ephesian we're not always and we're all a combination of all of all seven
0: so philadelphia gives you something to aspire to yeah is that okay and what uh, what about exactly philadelphia that causes you inspiration or that brings inspiration
1: I think there's the, the tagline that I got from you the first week we learned about Philadelphia mm-hmm. was that they flourished under persecution. Yeah. They thrived and flourished, whereas Smyrna, they persevered. They just kind of stayed constant, it seemed, Yeah. whereas this church thrived in it.
0: Yeah, the difference between Philadelphia and Smyrna, and that's good. The difference between Philadelphia and Smyrna was that Smyrna had to be encouraged to not despair and not fear. Because the persecution was great, whereas Philadelphia did, in fact, seem to actually, thrive. D- yeah, thrive, I guess is the best word, um, in that position. If those of you who just came in, we're just kind of doing a quick overview of Q&A of, because we're about to move into Section 2 of Revelation, Scene 2, ch- Section 2. Um, and I want to just be able to give a review because I want to be able to uh, contiguously maintain where we've been into where we're going so any thoughts on the seven churches we were just talking about which ones impacted you the most which ones do you consider uh, which which and what might have been something that was um, new to your thinking and we've had one so far anyone 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 So either I failed as a teacher, or (laughs) you guys are kidding, 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 kidding. That's a better way to look at it.
2: Well, I have uh, observation is that the the churches all remind me of of the temptation or the influence that the outside world has on our church here. Mm -hmm. And I see that kind of uh, pulling us in different directions from our life in the world Mm -hmm. uh separating from our life in the church so each of the seven churches to me describes a certain aspect of
0: of our walk oh that's good yeah and i think that's intended so just as anybody else real quick any questions any last minute comments i don't want to belabor this i just wanted to give you guys an opportunity to interject should you see see fit all right, in summary then, the seven churches basically, the number seven being the, the, the number uh, uh, um, apocalyptically of complete or fullness, the seven churches represent, although they were physical churches, they represent the church as a whole as it moves through the church age, and each expression of one of the churches, it gives us an example or gives us a an insight into the challenges and the struggles that will face and do face the church as a whole as it it exists within, and here's the key, within the systems of the Antichrist beast system, world system. And so when you look at the church as a whole, and this is something that we've been talking about in in Matthew, is that, that there's a constant going back and forth between Kingdoms, And so what I want to show you guys just real quick is just a kind of a visual is you have like the world and it's the systems of the world or the, what, what's called in many commentators the, uh, the city of man has consistently set itself up against God and against God's rule, right? Jesus came and he established a beachhead, if you want to use warfare terms. He came and he established by the finger of God a beachhead into the, into the systems of man, into the kingdom of the enemy. For the purpose of warfare, for the fu- purpose of redemption, make no mistake about it, redemption is a violent act. Okay? It, is a, it is an act of violence. It is an encounter between what is two forces that are diametrically opposed, both of which hate each other. And it is the snatching away from the kingdom of darkness by the kingdom of light. And this is no simple matter. It took a violent act to establish the possibility of that happening. What was that violent act? Crucifixion. Probably not a more heinous or more violent act could be perpetrated on an individual that you could think of. So what you want to understand is is that the church then is now in a very hostile environment. A very hostile, very opposed, very anti-church environment. And so what, what Revelation is all about is to pull the covers back and show you what this is all about. Show you the forces that are behind both the good and the bad side of this conflict okay and the way that revelation is structured is the first thing it does is it shows you what's going on in the natural first it shows you i take that back first what it does is it opens with a picture of the lord of the lampstands right a vision or a revelation of who jesus is And in this particular revelation, it's very important because this is a revelation of who Jesus is to his church, okay? He is the life giver, the shepherd uh, of, of the church. And so he walks among the lampstands. And we have that picture of who he is, what he does, what he's accomplished, and we actually have a visual representation of of who he is and this is important we'll talk about this in a little bit why why revelation is set up this way and then immediately from there we go right into a discussion of the churches and this is a dual discussion because there there is two things that are said there are the lampstands which are the physical representation or the physical representation of the church on the earth and then there are the seven stars that are held in jesus's hand which are the eternal representation of the church and there are seven of them okay so, you see this dichotomy, right? But the point here is that John wants to say, in the natural, this is what you will face as a church. In the natural, these are the things that the church will contend with. And what are some of those things? Let's just talk about them real quick. What are some of the negative, and I don't want to just dwell on negative, but what are some of the negative or the adverse things that we see throughout the churches, that the ch- throughout the, the letters to the churches, that the church as a whole has to face? What are some of those? Compromise, okay? Compromise. What else? Persecution. What else? Let's use the word apathy. False doctrine. What else? Lost love. It's a big one. Okay, that could go into persecution. Let's let's just put it suffering. Okay. yeah Okay. Now, if this is a picture of the, that's good enough. If this is a picture of the church, right? So let's say the circle represents the church and you start to move some of these things around, compromise comes from within the church. So compromise, persecution comes. So this is from in, this comes from outside. This is from in, this also can come from in. Lost love can be dual. Suffering comes from outside. Promiscuity comes from inside, and deception from outside. So the the picture that I'm trying to draw here is that the things that come against the church come from both in and outside. Now, the point being is is that the church and the the final deal that Jesus is trying to establish by this is to say to you, be on guard, be vigilant, be aware, be ever watchful. Because the, the forces that are arrayed against you are indeed good at what they do. I don't know how else to say it. They're potent. Okay. Uh,
2: about the being from the inside or the outside, I I think uh, apathy for one is uh, begins. It's from the inside, but it's but your influence from the outside to become apathetic because uh-huh. uh, the the influence from the outside give you doubt, give you reason to compromise, give you things that go through your skull. And then so it's really from the outside, And uh, when you accept it, and now it's on the inside. So okay. it's an invasion.
0: Sure, you know. sure. And a lot of these can be. A lot of these can be, like compromise can be something that, that uh, it happens over a, a period of time of being just banged on by the world. But I saw also compromise will come from false teaching or from non-vigilant teaching and we see that happening in the church right now with the whole idea of some of the some of the uh, social issues where there's a continual 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 harangment. continual this is okay God intended it this way this is the way you were created this is what you should be like you should be accepting you should da da. and pretty soon the church starts to embrace that kind of thing so over time compromise seeps its way into the church right so anyway not to not to do a, a current event discussion, but just to say that this is what we've dealt with so far. This is what we Revelation has shown us so far. That the, that the church is, can be su- subject to any number of these things. However, on the other side, it can be also a faithful, vital, Thriving witness. So at the same time that this can all happen, there is in fact the possibility and the attention for this to be. Okay? So it's not just it's not just, you know, like all doom and gloom. It's that there are Churches that are included in the seven that demonstrate that this is a possibility that this this has actually happened by the strength and the power of God and his and by the Lord of the Lampstand these are possible. And these these are expected actually. These are expected, and so. Um, just because the churches are, have this type of thing going on doesn't mean that Jesus, remember what Jesus said to these things. Fix this or I will. I'm going to, you know, uh, I'll take care of this. Don't fear. I'll spew you out of my mouth. I will come and destroy those who propagate the false gospel. I will remove your lampstand. Maintain, Persevere. I'll kill the children of, and deception is also, I'll, I'll come and make it right. So, the Lord of the Lamb stands is very in- involved. Now, the reason that in the very beginning that we see a, a this is going to be a parallel theme that we see throughout the book that before there is a scene where this kind of stuff is discussed, there's always a glimpse into heaven. There's always a glimpse or a revelation of who Jesus is or who God is. And we're about to see that in 4 and 5. Okay? Are we good with the churches? Any final comments? Any? Well, no no, that's true. There is no, no more mention, which is a very strong reason why dispensationalists believe that the church at this point is raptured. So, I know. It's, but we'll talk about that because, because many, many commentators, and you have to be careful when you read commenta- commentaries because it is at this point that many commentators separate dispensationally the first part of Revelation from the second part. That's right. Instead, what you have is the word Israel that's used quite a bit from this point on. And that also is used by certain dispensational camps to suggest that the, from chapter 4 on to the end of the book, or to roughly nine, end of 19, or, is really about Israel, ethnic Israel from this point on. I want to dispel all that. And I will tell you why, because it emasculates the book. It renders it impotent. irrelevant unnecessary if in fact the church is going to be raptured out at the end of chapter three why read the rest what difference does it make it's just a good story why would jesus say blessed is anyone who reads this book why blessed are those who read this the words of this book aloud why would that even be said so we're going to dispel some of those rumors, we're going to say, we'll talk about some of those, but now we're going to move into just a brief overview of uh, chapters 4 and 5, and the reason that we're going to overview this and not necessarily get into the text is because there's a lot of transitional concept, and one of the things that Rick just mentioned is very important, because there is a lot of things that go on at this particular point, from chapter 3... There's usually a divide made, and then we have chapter 4 to the end of the book, okay? And this divide right here is usually called the rapture. How many of you grew up with the idea of a rapture? See how prevalent this is in America? You go to Europe, and you won't see that many hands, If you go to Eastern Orthodox Church, you won't see any hands. So, it's a a Western evangelical theology. Grace, do you have the notes? Oh, already handed out? Okay. So, we'll talk about some of this. All right. Let's jump into it. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, scene 2, vision 2, the throne, the lamb, and the scroll. All right. I'll leave that up there for right now. Transitionary thoughts. If you've got your notes, you can follow along with me here. I'm going to go through transitionary thoughts. I'm going to talk to you again about hermeneutics because I want very much li- much to reestablish in our thinking the type of hermeneutic that we are coming from. We're not dispensational. We're not futurists. We are amillennialists or recapitulationists. <laughs> I know. <laughs> funny how they always stick a really long word to whatever. But... Um, I hold to that, and I've told you guys before that I have a really hard time disassociating myself from my futurist roots. I read the the Bible, I read Revelation, and I go, oh, that's going to happen in the future. And then I go, wait, 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 that's happening now. Or I can see where that's already happened. We have a really interesting way of limiting our understanding of Revelation to Western Christianity currently instead of understanding Revelation in the context of church history globally. And when you start doing that, you realize that, oh my gosh, this has been stuff that's gone on ever since Jesus was taken back to heaven. That there have been people that cannot buy and sell. That there have been people that have been killed for their faith. That there have been systems of the beast, that that there have been antichrist beings, that there have been false prophets, that there have been, listen to this, that there have been since the time of Christ's ascension, the mark of the beast and judgments from God and vials and and bowls and trumpets and woes. This is called what we call as a spiral effect, like this, with a theme that runs right down through the middle of it. We'll talk about that theme in a second. Okay? So for us to begin to shove a great deal of what we're about to read off into the future, we really, really Cause the rest of the book to become very, very impotent, very, very irrelevant to where we're at currently. We have to undo some of our preconceptions. We have to take our thinking that one of these days there's going to be this mysterious dark figure that's going to show up and make everybody put their hand on a scanner and get some 666 mark put on it, and then there's going to be an b- image somewhere made in the Middle East, probably Syria, that some dude is going to come along and breathe on and it's going to spring to life. I grew up with those stories. We have to remove all of that because from this point on, this is parabolic. This is a parable. And only those who have ears to hear will understand what Jesus is saying to the church. And we'll talk about why that statement at the end of chapter 3 is so important for the rest of the book. Am I losing anybody so far? I'm kind of just all over the place, but I just want to give a real segue because we need to talk about the hermeneutics again just to reestablish where we are. And then we're going to talk about an introduction to it. We're going to talk about the scene as a whole and what it represents and why it matters to the church. And then we're going to talk about the text starting next week. Transitionary thoughts. We have now moved into what many commentators consider the second division of the book. So the first division and this is why the first division is the churches and there's a phrase that's important here in the second division depending on your disp- or your hermeneutic is either the age of Israel or or God's dealings with Israel on the earth or the seven year tribulation is a more common one. Okay? So we're going to say that most people understand this to be the seven year trib or the great trib. Okay? I'm going to tell you that what I understand is that all of this is the church age. Okay? So. I don't understand, uh, the only thing that I understand by the phrases that I'm about to talk to you about is because of what they actually say. Now, uh, the division is determined usually by the words of chapters uh, of 119. Who's got a Bible? Somebody read for me Revelation 119, and please do it into the microphone. I'm catching on. (laughs) It only took me like four years.
3: Revelation 119, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this.
0: Okay, so those that are, and those that are to take place. That's the divisionary phrases. Those are the ones that are used. So this is those that are, and those that will take place, will, that will come to pass. Let's use those words. Okay? So that's your phrase division, or take place later, those that will take place later. According to, accordingly, most thereby divide the book into part one, what is now, and two, what will take place later, as I just said. Since the voice tells John in 4.1, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So that's, now we move up to chapter 4, verse 1. The voice tells John, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Most people go back to chapters 1, verse 19, and apply that phrase to this section here as being a natural division of the book, So, which by definition means that anything up to chapter 4 was the things that are. Now, I don't have a problem with that. But I do have a problem is when the things that will come to pass get so far moved over here, right, that there's this massive gap between when the first century church ended and the rapture as if God were somehow t- completely inactive. And there's no Warfare going on whatsoever. There's just, just a big void. Yeah, was between uh, the question is John wrote this down in eighty eighty six, 86, somewhere around there, probably more toward the early 90s. That is my understanding. So my understanding is, is that those things that must come to pass is from the time that Jesus said it in chapter 4 going forward. Because the things that are, are, have to do with the churches that were then. But we know that the number 7 represents the churches as a whole, so we must not apply the fact that this is an ongoing. And there's a word for it, and I'll give you that in a minute. Which means that it is now, yet ongoing. So those things that are does not necessarily relegate this to just this moment. It it actually means those things that are and will continue. Okay? So the seven churches and the things that are going on in the churches now have a direct connection over into chapter 4. So this false division here that people put so much theological or eschatological emphasis on is just simply a statement of where John is linearly in his revelation. These are the things that are going on now, John. I'm going to show you the things that must be, that are really going on, from the point that I show them to you on. Not at some future date, when the church is snatched out of the world and all hell breaks loose on the world. Go ahead, Rick.
3: Yeah, sorry if I'm getting ahead of you here. That's fine. I am telling you to shut up. <laughs> it's also true, though, that many believe that the rapture could take place at the end of the tribulation uh-huh. or in the middle of the tribulation. Yeah. So for some, the rapture <laughs> is even further down the road. That is true. And it makes... Yeah, all that other stuff is going to happen before even the yeah. rapture takes place.
0: And what Rick, yes. Uh, again, microphone, microphone. Microphone.
3: Okay, you discussed uh, how the conventional thought on the rapture is mm. in the Western church, American mm. church. So what do Amillenius say about the rapture?
0: Mm, does not exist. There's a catching away, but that catching away is at the second coming of Christ as he comes to establish the new creation. And if you read Thessalonians in conjunction with Matthew chapter 24, you'll see First Thessalonians 4 in conjunction with Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 24, you'll find that the same language is used. And the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and we who are alive and well will be caught up into the air and meet with him, and so shall we forever be with the Lord, right? Matthew 24, after the tribulation of those days, the Lord shall... Ascend with a shout and the voice of the archangel, and he'll send his angels out to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. It's the same event. Matthew 24 tells us when that'll be after the tribulation of those days. Doesn't get any clearer to me. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so there are those particular events. There's this, this is a pre trib. There's a, there is a, there's a group that understands that the three and a half years is a literal, and this is all based on literal interpretation of basically Daniel. Okay, so there are those that understand that, that the Antichrist will come at the beginning of this, right here, and that he will establish peace with Israel. And there will be peace with Israel for three and a half years. And then he will wage war on Israel. And the mid-tribbers believe that it's at that point when he reveals who he really is that Jesus will come and and take the church out. And then there are those that have started to lean toward, in my opinion, a better understanding of Revelation and have moved toward a post-tribulation rapture. Where they say that after the tribulation, however, the catch to that is before the 1,000-year millennial reign, which I put a kibosh on right here now. Okay, It's very complicated. It's very it, – this is something that, that somebody came up and said, oh, there must have been something that goes on right here. And from that point on, it went nuts. I'm just telling you, it has gone crazy. There are so many different thoughts and concepts and ideas and literalisms and symbolisms and inferences and read-ins and all things that you can think of just to tell us what's going on sometime in the future. And I think they're all distractions. I think every one of them is a distraction. I think it's designed to keep you from understanding what John is trying to say to you right now. You are in a war. It is an eternal conflict since there's been creation. Let me say that, because it wasn't always. <laughs> it is a conflict that has been since the creation. It has now culminated and come to a crescendo because Jesus has come to earth as a man. And as we read and we will read in chapters 12, the enemy is irate. And he has gone to wage war on the children of the woman. Who would that be? Raise your hand. There you go. So you are involved in a war. And so what I want to do is I want to wrap my arms around chapters 4 through 20 and pull them back and set them in your lap and say, this is for you. This is what you're experiencing. This is why things are difficult. This is why... This is why you must be the seven churches. This is why you must be vigilant. This is why you must deal harshly with false doctrine and guard your love and all of these other things that we learn from the seven churches. This is why. Okay, so let's proceed. <laughs> um, so, in chapter, so in chapter 119, it is said, uh, I will show you those things that are and those things which must come to, take, uh, which must come to pass or must take Place later. Will take place later, and then in four one, John hears the voice four one and two, and he and he he hears the voice that he heard at the beginning, the voice of the sound of the trumpet, and it says, "Come up here, and I will show you the things that must take place later." So there is that word that goes back to chapters one nineteen, okay, or chapter one verse nineteen. Uh, it is this very phrase that is uh, that are often used to support texts for those who hold to various dispensational and futurist positions. Now, we're going to talk about this, and we have been a little bit. Everybody need this? Can I just erase this? Um, and we're going to talk about this real quick. And we have been kind of a little bit as kind of in a shotgun fashion, but I want to narrow it down a little bit. Okay. The futurist position. What is a futurist position? What do futurists hold? We talked about this a year ago when we started this. (laughs) Futurists. Not going to happen right now. still projected off into the future somewhere. A lot of revelation has to do with things that will come about. They're not happening now. They will come about. There is going to be an antichrist. There is going to be a mark of the beast. There will probably be re- a rebuilding of the temple on the temple mound. Somehow the Dome of the Rock is going to be destroyed, and on and on and on. Futurists, okay? Uh, they focus primarily on the phrase, what will take place later, and do not see the phrase as denoting a necessary dispensational break. So one of the things that we have to understand is most people in America understand this phrase to be dispensation a dispensational break. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by a dispensational break? the be- end of one and the beginning of another the end of one what <laughs> what's a dispensation <laughs> it's an era what happens in that era is 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 it just a time frame or is there something when the word Bi- when the bible uses the word dispensation well it doesn't um that's right say it in the in the microphone It's the way, the the statement was said, that it's the way that God works with his people, and let's finish the sentence, during a particular time frame. Okay? That's an important statement to understand. So many people who understand Revelation use this break as as a dispensational demarcation. Now, what do you think they use it for? We talked about it a little bit. The separation of church, the church from Israel, the Gentile church from Israel. That's what many people see this break is. Now, futurists don't necessarily apply this dispensational break to the phrasing. That's more dispensational thought, all right? What is now... For them is a depiction of the church age through uh, the church throughout the church age, and they understand the church age to be from the time of Christ's incarnation until his second return, and that the church uh, includes the uh, the church age includes the final or great tribulation, which the church therefore will also endure. So, futurists also hold that there is no rapture, typically, and that the church will in, or pre-tribulation rapture, that the church will go through a tribulation period. However, most futurists understand the great tribulation to be a point over here. And it's usually defined as a seven-year period. Okay, So you can be a futurist and not be a dispensationalist, weirdly enough. And the reason you can be is because you can understand that this doesn't constitute a break between God's dealings with specific people. You can hold to a futurist idea and understand the church to be the new Israel of God. Okay? You can't do that as a dispensationalist. All right, By this, they understand that the following uh, that what follows chapters four and five depict two things, the concentration of the enemy's antichrist efforts, in their last desperate attempt to remove God from the society by destroying the church projected into the future and the outpouring of the wrath of God on the forces driving this rebellion, rebellion and those who participate therein with the ultimate end being the absolute and complete consummations of God's victory through the church. So they understand these general terms and they project them off into the future. Now, the consummation of God Uh, of all things in Christ Jesus, is a future event. Don't get me wrong. The ultimate destruction of the enemy, death, hell, is a future event. It hasn't happened yet. I'm not as naive to suggest that that's going on right now, although if you look at the recapitulation theory, you understand that it actually is. God is actually destroying the enemies by uh, those that that would purpose perpetrate his, uh, the enemy's uh, ideology by pouring out his wrath. And we're seeing some of that going on right now. We have throughout church, church history. So uh, future, uh, most futurists do, in fact, tend to refer to this final concentrated conflict as the Great Tribulation, but pr- predominantly do not restrict it to a little s- literal seven years. Okay, So futurists would suggest that as we go through the church timeline... There is this ramping up, and somewhere around in here, ambiguously, there's like a great tribulation. Some hold to seven years, some say it's a it's an indefinite time period. Okay. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, this is the fun one, are are in two camps, historic premillennialists. Uh, typically hold that the future perspective concerning these divisions typically holds to the future perspective or futurist perspective concerning these events. So a historical premillennialist is basically a futurist, is what I'm saying. Dispensational premillennialists, however, hold to a rather elaborate interpretation of these phrases. What is now specifically and exclusively refers to the church age. Okay? Rick? Quick question. Shoot. Are futurists literalists? They can be. They can be. Uh, Some of them are not. Um, Some of them understand the symbolism and project the symbolism correctly. They just do so off into the future. But
3: dispensationalists tend to be literalists. Very
0: literal, which is... And we're going to get to that. (laughs) They are literal and chronological. All right? So dispensationalists understand the term, what is now... To refer to the entire church age, it incorporates from the time of Jesus' incarnation until his second coming. Dispensationalists, a premillennial dispensationalist, would suggest that that, is, that encompasses the church age. Okay? What I did. I do. What they say is the phrase, what is now, encompasses the entire church age. I say what is now has to do with what was going on in the literal, physical, literal churches at the time, and what will be marks from what, when Jesus gave the revelation to John going forward. So I look at both as being significant. It, it ties, in my estimation, what is and what will be, is a, is a whole statement indicating this is what's going on and this is what will be. This is what's going on in the church. This is why.
3: <laughs> Seven churches do represent the entire church age. That's correct. So you got to be careful not to confuse those two things.
0: No, I'm, uh, what I'm trying not to say. Not you, s- I'm saying us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you yeah. got it clear. Uh, yeah, I got it pretty clear. Um <laughs> you understand my point? Yeah. So, we understand that the church age is from the time that Jesus ascended until his second coming. We all agree in this room that that constitutes the church age. Dispensationalists believe that the phrase, what is now, is applied to that entire time frame. Amillennialists do not. That's the difference. Amillennialists, so here's, let me draw it. Church age. Uh, incarnation. Return. Church age. Okay, there you go. Church age, right? And ascension. How's that?
1: Yeah.
0: All millennialists hold that the phrase uh, that the phrase what is now. What? Yeah, so all millennials hold that what is now has to do with this time period here, what's actually happening at the time of the writing. Premillennial dispensationalists take that phrase and applies it to this whole section. You see the difference? So what we understand is what is now and then what will be. Coincide and work together within the confines of the church age. That's an all millennialist perspective. Okay, you follow me so far? Okay, dispensationalists don't do that. Dispensationalists say this is what is now, and after the return is what will be. Therefore, there is, in a dispensationalist thought, a very, very hard break right here between the two. And there's no contiguous or continuity between the two phrases. They are dispensational phrases. Amillennialists do not hold a dispensational division between these phrases, but understand them to be two parts of the same coin. Therefore, what was... Or what is, according to John, is in fact very connected to what will be intricately. There is no break. Does that explain it pretty well? Okay. Anybody else having a hard time? All right. Where are we at here? Do I have two told? Yeah. It. Okay.
4: Based on what you were. Where where I thought how you were <coughs> describing it, um, is so the, the what is, because w- is the phrase what is now, or is it the things that are, was that the phrase? Mm. So it sounded like the things that are are at the time of writing, and you said are is not a, a it's the things that are and throughout the church yeah. ages, that's so that first part, like the talking about the churches, that's referring to the whole thing, that's not just that First oh, I see where
0: I see where the difference is. I get it. Okay. So, yes. So there is a there is a now but a continual aspect of the things that are because because of the symbolic number of 7. Okay? So but in fact, what Jesus is saying, let me show you the things that are. And this phrase has to do with what's going on in the first century churches. Now, we know because of the number seven that these, the events that are going on in the seven churches and the condition of the seven churches will, in fact, continue on through the church age. We know that for a fact. But that's not what this is referring to because this, is, this phrase is actually a linear phrase. This phrase is actually a statement of actual... Uh, uh, Time. what is now what you're experiencing now in the churches is now John let me show you what's going on in the churches right now but because there's a number 7 associated or a symbolic whole that's associated with this this will continue on but these are for what's going on now and then let me show you what will be which is from this point on to here in an amillennialist perspective. The difference is, is that in a dispensational perspective, all of this is what is now, which it kind of is for us as well, but because of the spiral, remember recapitulation, so we have to keep that in mind. But dispensationalists don't understand the spiral, so they make a hard break right here and divide the phrases. Now, this is the key word, dispensationally.
4: Okay, so maybe a way to, to say it is for allmillennials and dispensationalists, the what is the things that are is wh- what's happening exactly at the churches and all the way till the return. Yeah, but then the difference is the, the what will be, we say it's that's starting from at the time of the writing, and they're saying no, that doesn't start until the, the, rev- r- the, re- the return.
0: There you go. Okay, got it? Everybody good with that? Okay, we're done. No. Symbolic apocalyptic literature and concepts are not always 100% easy to understand because of a recapitulation idea. Now, to be honest with you, in many instances and in many, in many ways, a chronological literal interpretation is often easier. Because you just sit down and read Revelation as a, as a story, like you would read the Gospels. Apocalyptic literature cannot be read in that capacity. It simply cannot. So when you read Revelation, you have, to, you have to take on a different mindset. You have to understand that there are things that are said that have a literal connotation right now, but have an eternal effect. Okay? Okay? You have to understand that what's being said as being something that might be right now is actually something that is ongoing and continual. So it's 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 but it's behoovent or it's it's incumbent upon us to really think about what what we're saying. And I'm glad we took the time to go through this because the focus is not so much when all of this is, the focus is the fact that the that, uh, premillennial dispensationalists will make a dispensational break in this phrase. And that's the key to what I'm trying to say. What is now is the church. What will be is Israel. What is now is the church age. What will be is the seven-year tribulation. What is now is before the rapture. What will be is after the rapture. That's a predispensational thought. An amillennialist understands the phrases to be contiguous and to be inter- interconnected. Okay? What is now is the church age, but what will be is from the time that it was said on- going forward to John. So there's a now and a continual aspect to an amillennial belief. And you'll find that we understand that throughout our reading of Revelation. There is a now and there is an ongoing. There is a now and there's an ongoing. That's recapitulation. Will there be an outpouring of God's wrath on the earth? Yes. Is God pouring out His wrath on the earth? Yes. You see how that works? Is this a statement for the seven churches? Yes. Is it a statement for all the churches? Yes. Why? Because there is a recapitulation throughout the, old, throughout the book.
3: N- and one more thing to consider, too, is that Paul, then also in his writings, speaks of at the end of the age. Yes. That there will be things that will take place that are futuristic, mm-hmm. that are not happening yet. Yes. So we have to know that that is simultaneously true. As
0: well. That's true. Yeah. And so what we understand though and that goes into this recapitulation theory so let me just close with this statement here in recapitulation concepts or or an amillennialist viewpoint and i didn't get to this and we will next week because i feel like this is kind of important for us to understand the best way to draw a an amillennialist or a recapitulation theory is this it's a spiral yes but it's like this So these things will recur as church, as we know, hist- world history it recurs all the time, right? Reoccurs. What, what Revelation shows us is a recapitulation or a recurrence of the same things with a concentration as it goes along, with an Intensity. So that eventually, as Rick just said, Paul speaks of the things at the end of the age when this thing winds down to down here where it's just crazy. Now, those of us that say we're living in this time period right here, we see this going on, do we not? When I was born, the idea of gender dysphoria was not even heard of. Here we are 50 years later where there's 365 different genders or whatever. So you see how it funnels. So think of Revelation as a funneling recapitulation story. It's going down and it w- and it will go to and we're, the point down here is all things summed up in Christ Jesus at the new creation. That's where we're going. Okay? So I got to stop there. Um any thoughts? I know it's hard to get your mind around. It's hard to dialogue a lot about certain things. I hope that that picture right there helps a little bit. Josh. The the culmination of all that intensity. Yeah.
1: Will be Christ's return though. That will be the end of all of that. Yes. That correct.
0: Yeah. This is where death, hell and the grave are destroyed. Not only are they destroyed, there's not even a remembrance of them. We try hard not to sin. In the new creation, there is no sin. That's a concept that we can't figure out. Our minds in a fallen state can't even get around that concept because we contend with it Nonstop. We see the effects of it in our body. We see the effects of it in our horizontal relationship. We see the effects of it in our vertical relationship. We see the effects of it in the way we spend money, the way we watch TV, the way we do everything. Everything that we do, we see the effects of fallen nature, and we contend with sin at every point, and we contend with death at every point, every point of our life. Take that away. Think about that. You can't. Because it's in a, it's mind- the mind cannot conceive the things that the Lord has for those that love Him. You can't conceive what world without sin and death is like. But that's where we're going right here. That's the ultimate goal, okay? Father, we look forward to Your return. We say, even so, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.